Welcome to Next Up with NextGen, the podcast bringing you insights and perspectives from the next generation of leaders in the American Council of the Blind. Brought to you by ACB Next Generation. Hi there, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Next Up with NextGen podcast, presented by ACB Next Generation. My name is Greg Lindbergh, and I am the chair of the NextGen Publications Committee. On this episode of Next Up with NextGen, we are featuring a recording from a very recent event put on by the NextGen Programs Committee. This was the August 2023 education event, which looked back on the history of the American Council of the Blind. So let's go ahead now and turn things over to Kristen Kelling, who is the chair of the Programs Committee of NextGen. Kristen. Welcome to the ACB Next Generation monthly August education event. We, as many of you know, we did move this event. Um, We moved this event specifically so that we could put together this panel and that it would work. Um, So we're going to be talking about some of the history tonight. And we have uh, Mitch Pomerantz and Carla Rushable with us. Um, which we're really happy about. So what we're going to kind of do is have a little conversation with them. Um, several of our, our, our programs committee, the programs committee has some questions um, that we're going to ask. And then at the end, once um, at the end, we will open it up to audience questions. So I guess I'll just start with um, kind of just each of you, um, Mitch and Carla, if you guys can just kind of take a, a few minutes to introduce yourself and talk about some of your your current roles that you hold in ACB and your previous roles that you hold in ACB or that you've held. Right. Carla, you want to go And first? your experience with ACB and, and why you started attending, you know, started how you got involved. Sure. Carl, you want to go first? Go ahead, Mitch. I'll let you go first. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, um, I got involved in ACB out of necessity. Uh, my first several years in the organized blind movement, I was a member of the National Federation of the Blind of California. And in 1978, we were kicked out uh, for... Uh, <laughs> For reasons that are much too long and complicated and to go into, and that was a long time ago. So for five or so years, uh, our affiliate, which uh, we got the right to take our old name back, which was California Council of the Blind, uh, we uh, worked as an independent uh, organization. And in 19... I think it really began in 83 or so. Um, people like Dorid McDaniel and Grant Mack and Oral Miller uh, started talking to our leadership. And um, uh, one thing led to another. And by 1984, which was the first ACB convention I attended, uh, we became an affiliate. We merged with the then ACB affiliate, which was called the Associated Blind of California. Uh, we uh, merged 
and joined ACB under the California Council of the Blind. Um, I guess my first exposure, though, because 84, I was kind of there as a newbie. I had a very close friend uh, in the organization, and I primarily went back to see that person. But in 85, uh, and I think we were in Las Vegas, um, I'm sitting at the table in the restaurant having dinner, and I think it was Pat Beatty who, in fact, I was getting ready to walk out. I was walking out, and I don't know where I was going, but uh, Pat Beatty waylays me, and Pat was very active in the low vision group and other things, and I think she was on the board at the time, and she spots me, and she says, uh, Mitch, you're supposed to be at the resolutions committee meeting. And I said, what? What are you talking about? She said, well, you were... You were uh, put forward, your name was put forward to uh, serve on resolutions. And I said, well, it would have been nice if someone had told me. So uh, I went to the resolutions committee and I served on that committee for 15, maybe 17 straight years, including uh, I think three or four as chairperson. So that was that was my primary involvement. I'm a bit of a policy wonk, um, and so that was my primary involvement. Um, I served. I did a term on the board of publications, and then in the uh, early 2000s, uh, ran for a board seat and was elected to the board, and. Uh, served uh, on the board, and then as uh, second vice president, and briefly as first vice president, when MJ um, uh, stepped, or when, uh, uh, not MJ, uh, who was it who stepped aside? Carla, you got a better memory for for, for old history. Wasn't that the... Steve Spiker, yeah, Steve was first vice president, and Steve had some health issues, MJ moved up. And I served as uh, in that capacity, and then uh, was president from 2007 to 2013. Um, I'm basically these days uh, in in semi retirement. Uh, I sit on one committee, and that was the committee that was established uh, coming up on a year ago, the Prohibited Conduct Committee. Um, because of my background, I worked in affirmative action for uh, my former employer, the city of Los Angeles. So I had investigated complaints and and conducted hearings and all of that sort of thing. So um, I let Dan Spoon know of my interest. Uh, and so that's right now the, the, the only uh, committee that I, uh, I serve on in uh, in ACB, I chair a um, a trust that CCB has um, that uh, that provides uh, funding, but uh, that's pretty that's kind of dormant at the moment. But I do sit on that, and along with my my outside uh, activities. Aside from from ACB, I've served for four years on our condo board as president. And our Lions Club has a two million plus memorial trust that's endowed, 
and this year I'm currently serving as its chairperson. And I'm currently preparing because I've been playing fantasy football since way before anybody had ever heard of fantasy football. I'm preparing for our for our fantasy football draft, which is next week. So, other than that, uh, Donna and I we enjoy traveling, and I uh, I'm a, I'm into sports and I'm into reading and I'm into all kinds of music. So that's uh, that's kind of where I'm coming from. Okay, well. Um... Mitch, Mitch and I have some similarities in our ACB paths, but um, they're really uh, pretty pretty different uh, in in a number of ways. Um, I my parents were both uh, my father was blind, my mother was visually impaired, and back before ACB became ACB, they were members of the Kentucky Federation of the Blind, which is what it was called then, um, and of course. And then, uh, so I grew up in, uh, the, in the Kentucky Federation. Um, my father had gone to the 1958 National Convention, which if you read People of Vision, you'll discover that was a, uh, that was a, a pretty significant convention. Uh, but we were not really involved on a national level. Um, 1961, uh, the split came. ACB was formed. And, um, they, they were not there at the national convention. Um, unlike Michael Byington, whose parents, I think, were, were there in Kansas City. Um, but we were not. And, uh, but my father had been president of what was called the Louisville Association of the Blind here in Kentucky. And it is now the, um, uh, Greater Louisville chapter of the NFB. Um, but he had, um just a brief just a brief story um he was president and acb of the um uh of the greater louisville uh, chapter of the federation and he was planning if back then if you were a member of the council you could not be uh in the federation so he uh had a spaghetti dinner scheduled a spaghetti dinner for the group, they met at a church, which was across the street from the Kentucky School for the Blind, had the spaghetti dinner. And at the end of the spaghetti dinner, he basically said, well, this has been great, but we're joining the council and we left. And uh, so, um, but there had also been efforts to form a um, chapter of uh, the American Council of the Blind here in Louisville. And we had been meeting um, basically just once or twice a year for a few years. Um, you'll find a reference in uh, People of Vision to a person named uh, Will, Will Ruth. He was part of that group, and he was uh, the Kentucky Council of the Blind's first president. But back then, it wasn't called the Kentucky Council of the Blind. Um, it was called the Associated Blind of Kentucky, and Mitch's Associated Blind of California the two of uh, those two states um, were the were two that had those similar names, um, and uh, so you know I was a teenager through all this, and ACB came here in 1965, um, <clears throat> had its what it considers its fifth convention here in Louisville, and uh, 
the Associated Blind of Kentucky was chartered at that convention. Um, I remember being at the banquet, um, being there for the week and meeting people like Durd McDaniel and, um, Julie Bent, who was from California, is now deceased. Kathy Skivers was here. Um, I mean, a lot of the people who became very, very significant and active in ACB. And it, it was a wonderful, um, week. I, I could not be a member because I wasn't old enough, but, um, I, you know, I've, I've like Mitch, I've always been interested in, in the business side of the organization. And so there I was, even as a teenager. Fast forward a few years and, um, we, Durbert McDaniel, we had gone inactive. Durbert McDaniel came here in 1973 and said, um, to our, to our bowling, to a, uh, we had a bowling league and he showed up at the bowling league and he says, um, to my father who was there, he said, let's go eat dinner. And my dad says, well, uh, I'm glad you're here and, you know, nice to see you and everything. But if you've come here to try to get us to, um, to have an active ACB affiliate, we're not interested. And there was, oh, that's okay. I'm here. Let's go eat dinner. So we went to eat dinner. And by the time we got done with dinner, (laughs) there were being there, we had agreed to set up a committee to reorganize the Associated Blind of Kentucky. That was in 1973 and 1974. We had a meeting in January. I just came from the Oral Miller call with um, Paul Edwards. And I said there, Oral was at that first meeting. So was Durward. And, uh, but my condition, Durward said to me, what would it take for, for you to join, um, the, the, this group? And I said, I'm not interested. And he said, what, how, what would help you to join? And I said, if we, when we organize, we have a hundred members. And I thought that was impossible. Uh, <laughs> I just picked that number because I just knew it wouldn't happen. And I said, if, if we have a hundred members, I will join. He said, all right. I don't know where he came up with a list of names, but we, he sent a letter out to all these people. And my, uh, first husband, Don Franklin had agreed to be the acting treasurer. So he received all the mail and the people joining and all this. And imagine we have that meeting and Don had 107 people on the list. So Durward walks up to me that day. Um, and says, uh, there's 107. Where's your dues? Well, what could I say? So I joined. I left that meeting as, um, what was I? Secretary, I guess. Now, I can't imagine why I agreed to be a secretary. I don't like to do that. So I left that meeting as the secretary of this group. And um, I've been there ever since. Not as secretary, but as all kinds of other things. My thing in ACB has been, um, I, well, I was on the board in the 1980s from 1982 to 1990. Uh, my real thing that I've enjoyed, I think most over the years and done the most was working with conventions. Um, I was very much involved in the 1980 convention here in Louisville. We, there was no national committee and there were seven of us that put that convention on and I, uh, worked on program and publicity for that meeting. Um, uh, I was a convention coordinator from 1983 to 19 through 1987 convention 
in California when we had that wonderful uh, California host committee, and they really became the first national committee. They were fabulous. Um, and then another stint working with conventions from uh, 2002, uh, actually 2001, when Chris was elected president, um, until I became treasurer of ACB in 2011. Mitch called me up then, and I really didn't want to not be convention coordinator after I became treasurer. And Mitch called me up and said, um, well, you have suggest- any suggestions for the convention coordinator? And I said, well, I want to do it. And Mitch said, no, you can't. And I said, I don't know why not. And he said, you're not going to. So, <clears throat> therefore, um, I stayed treasurer, of course, because I've been elected to that. I was treasurer of ACB until um, my termed out at 2000, in 2017. <clears throat> so I think I spent 22 years in various capacities on the board, 1982 to 1990, 2002 to 2010, in 2011 to 2017. And then um, I also now am just real active as um, special in special interest groups, ACB Lions, um, ACB Families, uh, Library Users of America, and then I've been treasurer of the Kentucky Council of the Blind and, um, and uh, served as editor of its newsletter for a long, long time, longer than anybody. The, not longer than anybody needs to be doing those things, but you know, uh, I enjoy them, and um, so that my function now is more with affiliates than it is with the national group. So I think that's enough, um, more than you probably ever wanted to know. <laughs> well, you kind of already touched on what the early days were like, but do you guys have a favorite memory? Oh goodness. <laughs> yeah, I have to think. I have to think about that one uh, myself. I, I think. I think just generally getting getting my feet wet in ACB in the in the mid to late eighties. Um, my one of my mentors was Otis Stevens, and I guess Otis and I hit it off. And Otis was president for I think only one term. But Otis was an attorney. Uh, he was actually a political science professor at University of Tennessee. And then he went to law school and, and became a, an attorney. And I guess Otis and I hit it off because I had been a political science major, uh, bachelor's and master's at uh, University of Southern California. And Otis and I would start having conversations about political issues. And then... Um, and then ultimately, we'd start talking legal stuff, although he finished law school. I didn't. I dropped out. Um, but Otis was one of my mentors, and, and my my early memories were just learning about the organization, because when I was in the Federation, uh, relations were very, very different than they are now. Um, and so we learned a lot of things about ACB that just, in fact, weren't particularly true. So my my early times in the, in the council were kind of unlearning some of the nonsense that I had learned previously. And, and you know, I, I did have some concerns about the organization at the time. I, uh, I thought that uh, ACB 
functioned more in reaction to what the NFB did, and Carla may have a totally different view on that, but it, it seemed to me that we were doing a lot of things because the NFB wasn't doing them or because we weren't doing things because NFB was. And and so I think I think what I saw in those early years and what I experienced was kind of the beginnings of our coming out as an organization. California, uh, Iowa, uh, Alaska, Hawaii, Washington yep. State, uh, all were expelled from the Federation or left D.C. As Roger Peterson would kill me, uh, and D.C. Association as well. So six mm-hmm. former NFB affiliates. One there in New Jersey, us. one too, Mitch. Didn't New Jersey? New Jersey, I'm not sure if New Jersey was at that time, but you may well be, be right about that. There, but, there was a but, second New Jersey affiliate, and I think that's where yeah, that came from. Yeah. But I think I think what was interesting in the in at least my early days, and unlike Carla, I was 34. I was a member of Next Gen, or would have been a member of Next Gen when I joined <laughs> when I joined ACB in 1984. Uh, but but there were a lot of folks who were very concerned about a bunch of NFBers uh, joining the organization, coming into ACB, and kind of changing the the culture changing the dynamic and and i think those first few years i appreciated kind of that process of us melding and merging into the uh, into the organization and and you know a number of us becoming integral uh, uh parts of of the organization uh its leadership and its rank and file for that matter yeah i think you're right and we spent a lot of time worrying about what nfb was doing <laughs> and and I think it's I think it's really um, a positive now that you know a lot of times it, you can go a long time before somebody now on any of the email posts or anything are really worrying about it, about what NFB is doing. It's like well let's just take care of what we're doing and we know we're doing good things so let's just get it done. And yeah, I mean you need to be aware of what's going on on the other side of the aisle, but um, really. Sometimes it's almost like, well, who cares? You know, <laughs> not exactly. I mean, you need to know what everybody's doing in the field, but it's not, it, Mitch, you're right. It's, it's not like we are um, all worried about what's going to be happening. ACB has grown up and learned to row our own boat, um, and, and we don't have to spend a lot of time looking over our shoulder. Yeah. I think it one was, of the was, things, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Carla. Well, I, I was just going to say that one of the things, I mean, there's so many things that are, um, you know, in that category of favorite memories. Um, but I think one of the things that's kind of on this topic that I remember an incident in a general session, uh, in 1985, uh, in Las Vegas, I think, I think that was the first year that, that John Taylor, who was from Iowa. Most of you probably don't even know who that is. John Taylor um, was from Iowa, and he was at ACB because he was in the Iowa affiliate uh, that had been kicked out. And John was one that had been dismissed. The interesting thing about John is that John Taylor 
had been president of NFB in 1961. And you can find the story in People of Vision. Um, there's so many stories in there. Um, but John Taylor had been the president. Well, John is, you know, we were sitting by delegations in the general session. And so here's John in the ACB general session in Las Vegas. And, um, and, and I don't remember what the resolution was about, but we were having one of those debates. And really, I didn't think it was that significant a resolution. It was one that some of us just didn't care a whole lot about. But for some reason, somehow it wound up, um, it, the resolution had been defeated and 25 people got up to ask for a roll call. That rule was in effect by that time. And they got up to ask for a roll call. And uh, Kentucky was sitting behind Iowa, and we were toward the back of the, back of the room at the time. And um, I, I, I don't know why I got up and was walking up the aisle to find somebody. And here's John Taylor in the aisle asking for um, a roll call and adding his name to the list. And I don't know, it was some resolution about something that the Lutherans were doing. I, I can't even remember. Um, and I said to him, I said, oh, John, um, are you interested in this resolution? And he said, no. And I said, but you asked for a roll call. He said, I did it because I could. <laughs> and you know what? That was such a significant statement because he could not have done that in NFB. I don't believe. Could he, Mitch? Absolutely not. And, <laughs> exactly. And, you know, the the experience that I had that, that was kind of similar to that was the first time I ran, I think it was for, for Board of Publications. And I was, I, uh, and I had, uh, there was, there was someone running against me and uh, I asked, and I'll always remember this. It was, it was Georgia. I asked, um, uh, I asked Alice Richard uh, if she'd make a nominating speech for me, and she said she would. And then, when it came time for the uh, for the for the uh, affiliate vote, uh, I think Georgia had four votes at the time, and and Alice uh, Alice got to the mic and announced two votes for who, whoever it was, uh, and two votes for Pomerantz. And I thought to myself. She made a speech for me. Why didn't I get all four votes? And and it was kind of uh, you know even though it was you know late nineties early two thousands it was kind of an aha moment for me because it brought home that uh, yeah things were very are very different in uh, in ACB but but I also wanted to mention a, a lady that we were very good friends uh, M J Schmidt uh, oh, to yeah. my point a few minutes ago. MJ and I were crazy Dodgers fans, and um, even though MJ and I were very good friends, uh, when I first announced that I was running for ACB president, MJ, um, who didn't, you know, she didn't mince words, she said, I'm really concerned about a, a former NFB member being president. And I said, I'm no longer in that organization, MJ, and and you know I don't know what else I can tell you. That was the organization in California that was far more active. Uh, Kathy 
MacGyvers and, and Juliet Bent in, Esterly notwithstanding in California, in the ABC, but I said, uh, I'm not in that organization anymore, and I haven't been in that organization for over 20 years. But that's, you know, those are some of the things that that you remember and, and that really kind of gets you to, to realize and understand the kind of organization we are. And Carlos mentioned people of vision twice, and I'll, I'll make it a, three, uh, a third time, because anybody who really cares about this organization and why we are who we are has to read the, that book. And now it's, you know, it, there's been some talk about a second uh, a follow-up, uh, but, you know, whether that'll ever happen, I don't know. But, but if you really want to know about this organization, uh, you've got to read it. It's a soap opera. I mean, it, yes. it, it really is. And it, it's not just about ACB. The whole first part of it is about, uh, first of all, the first many, you know, years, the history of the blind movement. And then the, from the time that the organizations were forming up to 1961 and the, and, and all the things that people went through. Um, so ACB could be organized. That book, it could be a, it could be a made for TV movie. I mean, it really could. And, um, and I remember some of that because, um, I don't know if any of you all on this call know about uh, the Braille Free Press, but that was sort of a bridge between uh, NFB and ACB. And I remember in Kentucky, uh, my father was a vendor. He was not part of the state program. So therefore, he didn't, it, it, it wasn't a, you know, they couldn't do anything to him. If they couldn't uh, invite him to leave his stand. but. Um, if he were caught with reading the Braille Free Press. But I know, uh, I knew many people who, uh, would, uh, have lost their, uh, vending, uh, location had they been part of the Braille Free Press Association and later part of ACB. And that went on for many years. So it, it was a very different world back then. I believe uh, Shane Aguilera, another one of our oh, yeah, members, has the next one. <laughs> okay, the, okay, the next one states, what is a challenge that you have found that ACB has overcome in over the years, and how does it change or impact the way we operate the, to this day? Hmm. You want to start with that one, Carla? <laughs> uh, read the question again, Shane. <laughs> Okay, it is what is a challenge that ACB has overcome over the years, and how do you feel it has impacted the way we operate today? Well, I think we've been talking about what ACB has overcome, and and that is it's um, sort of it's growing up, um, you know, uh, not being paranoid about what is going on in Baltimore, um, and and maybe in some of the states. I do think that um, I, I think that 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 can be good and that can be not so good because I think a lot of um, groups and a lot of affiliates have become complacent. Um, you know, they don't have to work at existence anymore. And in, in some case, now they they have to work in other ways because they just kind of sit back a lot of times and don't don't um, and, and don't, you know, really. Um, 
see that they they have to work at at being successful at keeping the membership up all these things um but i think as far as just being you know sort of the paranoia that that was that happened um i said one time when the kentucky council of blind um sort of uh, I, I guess woke up and discovered that uh, we were no longer the minority organization in this state. Um, you have to learn to lead. Um, you, it's a different way. It's a different feeling um, to decide that or to see yourself as um, successful and positive and um, not have to spend all your time uh, you know, deciding if you're doing something, doing good enough or well enough or whatever. It's not that you don't pay any attention to what's going on. It's a, it's just a different way of viewing yourself. You have to see yourself as successful if you're going to be successful. So um, I, I think that's a change in ACB. Um, I don't know, Mitch, how do you, how do you see that? You probably have a different outlook. Well, I was I was going to go a different direction. Um, okay, a book that really um, helped solidify my perspective on on uh, the twenty first century was a book that I read back in two thousand three called Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam, and it looks looked back on the last fifty well longer than that, but the the most recent 50 years from 1950 to 2000 and the decline in volunteerism in this oh, country. Yeah. Yep. And um, it had a, an impact on me because what concerned me about ACB was that um, the, the, the older generation of which I'm certainly now a, a part uh we we are concerned and that's why it's so gratifying that next gen uh is is part of ACB but what Putnam said was that volunteerism people weren't joining organizations and if they did join organizations they weren't volunteering to help they just wanted to be members quote unquote yep and so what what i had said and i've said it for years ACB needs to um, become or, or have the wherewithal to be able to employ more professionals, people who were paid to do many of the things that, that blind volunteers did for the first uh, 30, 40 years of ACB's existence. And, and, you know, I I always got into it. I probably wasn't real popular with the students at one time because, uh, you know, everybody was saying, well, you've got to recruit students. You've got to recruit students. Uh, when I was a student, uh, I had no interest in any organization of the blind. I didn't join NFB till I was out of grad school. Why? Because students are finishing school. They're looking for employment. They're they're dating. Uh, if they're a little older, they're getting married. They're having kids. 
students don't have that kind of time, really. There are obvious exceptions. We have a very active student affiliate. But what I said was, we need more professionals. We need to do enough fundraising that we can begin to rely more on people who are paid to do a job. And that has happened. I, One of my few predictions that has actually come to fruition, uh, but, but I, I think that's the direction that organizations, not just us, uh, have, have, uh, are going. I see it in Lions. Uh, I see what's happening at our district level and hopefully your, your district, uh, Carla has got its act more together than our, uh, than the, the district 4L2 that we're a part of, but we've got that issue. Uh, every, every president of our Lions club going back five or six people, including myself and Donna, uh, we've all been asked to become zone chairs and to move up in the ranks, and we've all said, no, thank you. We've got enough to do on the, the local level. But but the challenge for ACB that we have met and hopefully can maintain is having sufficient staff to carry out a lot of the, the functions that volunteers, more volunteers used to perform. That's not to, to downgrade or limit the, the volunteer aspect of the organization, but but the trend is, is pretty clear that, that the kind of volunteerism that that Carla was a part of, I I was a part of, we're both a part of, just to a lesser extent, is is just not the case any longer. Yeah, the problem is that ACB historically um I, I, ACB has a hard time um standing prosperity. And <laughs> yes. It has a habit of shooting itself in the foot, starting from the mid-80s when it almost shot itself in the foot to the point it came within a hair of putting itself out of business um, to, you know, going through some pretty good, you know, prosperous times uh, in the 90s to then managing to get itself into pretty, um, you know, pretty bad financial conditions um, in the 2000s. And now we're, we're, we're doing pretty well, but I guess I'm cynical. Um, but I see some signs of that, um, you know, cycling down. And I think I'm concerned that we are, um, uh, we are depending too much on staff. And every time we want to have, you know, something new, we, we think about, well, let's just hire another staff person. And ACB, I don't think is going to, ACB, I'm not sure that's sustainable, uh, but ACB will figure it out. And I often said to people, because NFB had all the money and they do have all the money. Uh, I mean, they don't have all of it, but they have a lot of money, um, millions and millions and millions of dollars. At one point, I checked the 990s that are associated with them and they had about $60 million. and so they got a lot of money. Um, I, I often have said if success depended on who had the most money, ACB would have been uh, just a thought many years ago. And we seem to always be able to make it happen. And, um, you know, we're, we, we're pretty much, um, um, we, we, we can pretty much uh, keep it going. And I think that will happen. 
I don't like the cycles, but that is obviously sort of our way of life. And, um, and I think it will continue to be. But Mitch is right. Um, we could not possibly run the organization and, and what we have now with the staff that we ran this organization um, years <laughs> ago. Yeah, because we used to only have, what, Mitch? Six staff members, seven, whatever. Between uh, we, Minnesota we were, and We were down, including Minneapolis. Yeah, we were probably down to five or six. Yeah, we were. So. It's a it's a fine line, and and yeah, uh, these situations, the economics are are cyclical, uh, but there is <laughs> a sure fine are. line, a, a balance, yeah, a balance between having sufficient staff and having enough uh, interested and active volunteers, and there really is a difference between yep. a member, somebody who pays their dues every year. Uh, either as an at-large member or as a member of a special interest affiliate or a state affiliate, and somebody who actually is is interested enough and committed enough to say, "I'm I would like to take on that that assignment. I'd like to to be you know on the board. I'll run for the board or I'll chair the whatever committee uh, whatever committee needs someone to run it." And it requires a lot of time. It's not just sure a title and a hat. Yeah, this is really insightful. I really appreciate it. But I just was wondering if um, there was a particular tradition that was around back when ACB started that we still have. Um, And are there traditions that you wish that would return? (laughs) I... Yeah, I, I... Even even though the older I get, the more I look back at the uh, at the past with fondness, because uh, you <laughs> tend to forget the bad stuff and only remember the good stuff. Um, now I can't think of any of any traditions that uh, that we have discarded that uh, that I, I I'd like to I'd like to see return. I guess some of the some of the social activities that uh, you know, I used to go because because Donna, my wife, for those who don't know, Donna was uh, active in in uh, CCLVI for for a bunch of years, and and I'd go to the Friday they'd ha- they'd have a dance on Friday night, and and uh, as 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 little as I dance, I always managed to be out on the dance floor with with somebody, um, but but I I really. Maybe the tradition is a convention that only lasted six days. Maybe that's the maybe that's yeah. the, the tradition that I, I'd like to maintain. I know that that even going back to uh, my last couple of years as president, uh, we we talked about the need because more and more of our members are employed and just don't get the kind of vacation time that that uh that they need we we have people you know two-thirds of our vendors would leave by the middle of the week during the convention and and that's not a good thing Uh, we didn't have as many people voting on the last day of the convention as were there earlier in a week um so we started talking about shortening the convention and and you know we kind of cut it down by a day 
but but now with the move toward uh, hybrid conventions, um, the conventions seem to have gotten longer. And uh, you know, for folks like me, uh, you know, I'm retired. Uh, it's not a problem, or it's not usually a problem. But I do have outside commitments, and so you know, the conventions have kind of uh, spread and gotten longer, and and it is an issue. And so maybe the tradition that that I'd like to see return is figuring out some way for us to have a a six day convention. <laughs> that, uh, you know, that's, uh, anyway. Well, I don't think a six-day convention is practical, but but at the same time, a convention that's two or three weeks long is an issue, too. I, did, I thought the two weeks was better this year, but um, it was. for various it reasons. Was. Yes. Um, I, I guess the thing I was concerned about this year is expecting people to um, vote for a roll call on resolutions and then remember what they were for two weeks, and that's just, that's not within the ex- reasonable expectations of a person's memory. Um, but uh, I do think that one thing we need to be sure we explain, Mitch, is that uh, back in the early days when you had, uh, and, and actually some of those traditions still remain, you have some of the special interest groups who traditionally meet the first part of the week, and then a lot of those are gone. I mean, um, yeah. the attorneys still meet the first uh, the first few days, the vendors still meet the first two days. Um, uh, let's see, there there were some others, but um, and the bits is not they've spread out a little bit, but they used to be in a uh, group called VidPi, and they met the first uh, few days. And what they would do, they would come in and have their special interest group meetings. Um, those would go Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. And general sessions didn't start till Wednesday. So right. uh, the general session would begin on Wednesday and it would go through Saturday morning. And so you basically had a big check out on Tuesday and another big check check in coming in on Tuesday. It, it was uh, uh, the first couple of years I was convention coordinator. Um, in fact, the first three or four years in there, uh, that was a, a major thing. Um, you'd, you'd have a big check out with the hotel on Tuesday afternoon and in would come another group. And uh, so, you know, the schedule did not change to have uh, an opening session in the evening until I think that was 1990 was the first um, evening opening general session. And we tried to get that for several years and, and um, couldn't do it. And finally uh, it did happen. I think Leroy Saunders is who finally agreed to, let it happen, but it had been talked about since 1983. So I think the the, the reason for the for the change and to have uh, special interest meetings in the afternoon. I think uh, I don't remember when that actually started to be talked about, but it was quite a lively mm-hmm. conversation. It and, was, and I think, mm-hmm. and the, the the problem the problem that that folks thought. Uh, was that you had more people checking out Tuesday than checked in or, or Wednesday? That that our hope or the hope. And I think I was one of those that supported the, the change, but the hope was that we would get some of the folks who only came for the special interest meetings 
that, mm-hmm. that we get them to stay. I mean, the point, the reason that special interest affiliates got their their start was because of Durward. Durward right. wanted as a recruiting tool for uh, for special interest affiliates, uh, basically what, what at least used to be called affinity groups, folks right. or interest to right. to join, and hopefully through those special interest affiliates, folks would decide to stay in ACB, and so you know that was the impetus behind the change. Uh, whether it has worked or not, uh, I don't know, but but that was the the point of the exercise. All right. So I think um, I'd like to, um, if the rest of the programs committee is okay, um, I'd like to go ahead and open it up to the audience. Um, If you have a burning question that you want to ask that hasn't been covered, um, you can feel free to raise your hand. Uh, DJ McIntyre, you're first. I just want to say first, thank you, Carla and Mitch for the background because I'm not new to ACB, but the history really, really helps. I know the difference in the organizations in my own state, um, but from a national, it's really cool. My question was just more when, with everything you guys have seen, the changes inside ACB, do you see any new affiliates or how have the affiliates affected like growth within ACB? Um, has we, have we seen it more in a positive thing? With, you know, having our special affiliates that more people are likely to come and become ACB members or what's kind of the trend been since you guys were kind of talking about affiliates a little bit earlier. Um, just curious. Thank you. I think, well, I think the special interest, well, you want to, you want to go first, Carl? No, go ahead, Mitch. <laughs> I think that what you have seen by the affiliate votes, by the, by the delegate votes, is uh, you've seen the numbers actually go down among the affiliates. Not as many people are joining the affiliates. Um, anecdotally, and I, I suspect it's it's the case, but you know we haven't seen the figures. Uh, I, I think that the community calls probably have done more to um, increase our membership. The problem is that an awful lot of folks, and again, this goes back to to what I was talking about uh, volunteers and bowling alone. A lot of people are joining as at large members, and not so much uh, through their state or special interest affiliates. So our numbers apparently have gone down vis-a-vis affiliates. Um, whether our numbers have gone up overall um, through the special or through the community calls and and all of that, I don't know. But but again, uh, the trend nationally uh, is is for folks not to join organizations, and so that's something we we constantly have to deal with, and we need to to find. Uh, ways of attracting members, and we've been having that conversation um, at oh, least goodness. as long as I've been in ACB, which is now coming up. It'll be uh, next next year. Will be forty years. Yeah, um, I think that um, there's it, it is extremely obvious that 
from the affiliate vote and from the roll call that, um, you know, we are kidding ourselves. If it, when they tell us, well, we have all this membership growth. No, we don't. Um, it, this affiliate, ACB Next Generation, um, is doing a very good job of getting people interested and uh, getting them to participate. And uh, that's important. There's no one group that's going to solve the membership problem. But as Mitch says, membership in general, all over the place, is down. People don't join as much. And I'll give you an example. Our Lions Club, the Lions Club I'm in, Louisville Downtown Lions Club, when I joined 25 years ago, met every week on Tuesday at noon and had lunch. Uh, you would go to a meeting and there was anywhere from 45 to 50 people at that meeting and that club had at least 80 or 90 members. Today, we meet twice a month in the evening. You'd think that helped people get there more uh, easily. We we have a great night if we have 15 people show up and our membership is down in the 20s. We do a lot of things because we raise a lot of money, but do we have members participating? No, we don't. Um, and there's a lot of concern because we have very few new members and very few members that are under 60 years old. So there's going to be a problem coming up soon. And I think that's true also um, with, uh, you know, with that's true in all organizations. That doesn't, that doesn't justify, um, you know, our kind of resting on our laurels. But membership is an issue. And um, the the issue I have with the membership at large is that <clears throat> I do not see ACB really uh, making an effort to refer those members at large to their uh, potential state or special interest chapters. Now, they will tell you they do, but, <clears throat> um, uh, you know, as as uh, a, a board member, uh, the treasurer of the Kentucky Council of the Blind, as the president of, uh, in the past, of ACB Lions, as the president, just winding up on that um, turn, there will be a new president coming up, um, I can tell you. And as uh, the, the person in Lua who does uh, the membership, I can tell you that we don't get... Um, we get very, very few referrals and in some years, none from ACB. And I think that's a major problem. So, you know, we the, both hands have to work with each other in order to be successful. Our two Lions clubs have a lot in common, Carla. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet they do. Except, except our membership actually went up. When we switched to a, uh, when we moved our second meeting to an evening, our our, our numbers actually uh, have have increased a little bit, at least in so far as folks attending. Well, ours did for a little while, uh, not from the forty five, but we were down to about twenty at the time that we changed, and it went up to you know twenty five ish or so there yeah. for a while. But then COVID came along, and that caused us a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so. Does anybody else have a question? Uh, feel free to raise your hand. And why, while members are thinking about it, um, 
why, number one, how would you, I mean, how does ACB differ from other blindness-related organizations, and why would you recommend ACB to people in our age range? So, specifically, the members of NextGen that are in the 18 to 40 range. Well, my short answer to that is you you have your affiliate and, um, you know, you are pretty much able to run your affiliate, do your thing. Um, you know, uh, ACB really, um, ACB really can't come in and dictate to you um, what, what you must do. Uh, you may, you know, if they suggest something. You can choose to accept or reject, um, you know, most things. And, uh, and I, and I don't know about Mitch because he, because he came out of a group that decided that they were not going to be, um, in today's world, if you were a little kid, they call it bullied. Um, and, and I think that's important. Uh, I think the special interest groups, when next gen at the national convention, it, ACB is not telling you what your program must be. ACB is not telling you who you can take in as a member, what their role needs to be, even what you call your committees or your affiliates or whatever. Um, ACB is not telling you how many things you can do. You are basically functioning as a, uh, you're functioning pretty independently. And I, I don't know what you'd have to do to, to, you know, for ACB to say, no, you can't. Well, you could probably do something pretty awful, but I can't think what it would be. And, um, you know, I think that's why we're here. I, I don't know about Mitch, but that's why, that's why, um, that many of us got, got involved and we might have phrased it different ways. Um, you know, you can pick and choose as individuals. You can pick and choose what you want to do or what you don't want to do in the organization. Um, Mitch and I would like to see many more people getting involved and doing many more things, but when it comes right down to it, it's your choice. Yeah, I, I, I think I make two distinctions. First of all, we are different from agencies like yes. American Foundation for the Blind, Lighthouse, uh, Clovernook, because we are member-driven, even though we right. have paid staff, we are member-driven. Uh, anyone can draft a resolution, and uh, you can bring it to the resolutions committee. And if the resolution is uh, uh, carried, is, is voted you know, will, to support, the committee will carry it for you. But even if it loses, even if the committee doesn't want to support it, you can still bring it to the floor. Um, you couldn't do that. You certainly couldn't do that in a federation. Uh, no. <laughs> but, but and you can't do that are, today. Yeah, but we're we're member we're member driven. Um, and and by the way, Carly, you were right on with regard to the discussion on resolutions. That has to change because <laughs> we had we had to convince them to even read the resolution uh, on the floor, but we we did. Uh, but but you know that's that's one one difference. But the other difference, um, and I say that we're member driven, even though 
we've had to assume a business model because guess what? Every successful uh, agency that provides services has to has to be oriented toward business. They have to make wise business uh, and and fiscal and legal and and personnel decisions. Yes. But despite that, or because of that, we we still are a membership driven organization. We're still an organization where anyone can can you know bring an idea forward. No one is going to get in on the floor. Uh, no one is going to get chastised for for making a, uh, for making a comment that you know people may you know you may hear some you know, some murmuring in the background, but no one's going to throw you uh, you know no one's going to say you know you're turn off their mic. Yeah. Um, so so well, you know that's I think that's important and and again. Uh, what distinguishes distinguishes us from from NFB is yeah we're we really do provide and allow for a considerable amount of autonomy among our our affiliates. Uh, we do indicate we do specify you cannot have a provision in your constitution bylaws that runs counter to uh, to to ACB. We have that issue come up. Uh, with an affiliate whose name I will not mention, <laughs> but I but during my time as president, I actually attended one of their conventions, and it took them three years. They had a provision in their constitution that um, you could not, and and I think Carla mentioned this at the beginning, you you could not be a member of the uh, blank council of the blind if you also were a member of the NFB of blank state. It took three years, but they finally did uh, change that, and that came up because they wanted to start a guide dog affiliate in their state, and a number of the folks who um, uh, who who wanted to join that affiliate were members of the Federation. And uh, that took, I think, three years to get resolved, uh, to to everybody's satisfaction, but but uh, we're you know NFB is a federation in in many respects we're a confederation, but you know we we run our states uh, the way we we deem appropriate, but we come together on the national level and hopefully even in this day and age where. Everybody seems to be mad at everybody else at the drop of a hat. We try to reach some consensus, and we try to 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 come out of our conventions with uh, with with policies and 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 uh, advocacy endeavors that that we can all agree on and and uh, and push for. Well, what I um, what I think is very important. I have two comments. Um, one is that um, in in ACB, uh, we can be sitting on that convention floor <clears throat> or on Zoom, whichever way, um, but we can be, let's say, at the at the convention and we're we're sitting there. And Mitch uh, mentioned the thing where Alice had made Alice Richard had made a seconding speech for him, and then she voted two and two on the Georgia vote. For him on the election, um, 
we can have be having a debate on something. Um, I happen to like the in-person debates better than I like those on Zoom. But uh, this last year, um, we did pretty good at learning to debate on Zoom before the convention. That that was it's a learning experience, and it's going to get better as it goes along. But we can have a debate, and we can disagree, and we can have um, a vote. And it may be pretty close. It may turn out by the time the vote's taken that it's pretty one-sided. But I can disagree with you and you can disagree with me on whatever. And um, when that issue is passed, the next issue that comes up, we may find ourselves agreeing with each other. And ACB does that all the time. You cannot predict how Every vote is going to come out. Sometimes you just have no idea, but people can express those opinions. And we may get pretty irritated with people sometimes over their opinions. But the next thing that comes up, we may find ourselves um, on, on different sides of the fence. I have a completely unrelated story to that. But I think the differences between groups is is really uh, kind of stated in this story. My husband, Adam, did not attend a national ACB convention until 1999. He had worked for the uh, Kentucky Talking Book Library. He'd been the director of that library for 13 years and then worked at the um, Kentucky, been the manager of the Kentucky Materials Resource Center for 12 years after that. We got married in 1997, and when we got married, he said, now, you are welcome to, you can be as active as you want in ACB. I'd been active for many, many years, as you already know. He said, uh, and he had come to and been very supportive of a number of the Kentucky Council of the Blind's positions over the years, but he had never been to a national convention. He had come to state conventions. In fact, he was at that first state convention in 1974, but he never joined. So he says to me, when we get married, he says, now, um, you are welcome to participate in the council any way you want. You can go to national conventions all the time, but don't expect me to join and don't expect me to go to national conventions. And I said, okay. That's all right. I didn't say anything else. Um, he said, but I'll, I'll stay active in Lions. And, um, he said, if you want to join Lions, that'd be great. I'd really like for you to do that, but I'm not going to national conventions. Okay. So two years later, well, I did join the Lions because they had pretty good food when I go to their meetings on Tuesday. So didn't have to think about what I was going to cook that day. Um, and so. 1999 comes along, and it's in Los Angeles. And the next convention, the next year, 2000, was here in Louisville. And my mother, who was alive then, um, my mother was pretty, um, she, was, she, she wasn't real active in positions and on boards, but she could tell you straight out what she thought. So she lived about a block from us, and she called me up one day in June, about the middle of June, it's Hot as blue blazes. And she says, I want you all to come over 
And we go over there, and it's about, I swear, it was almost 100 degrees. She's sitting on the back porch, a glass-in back porch. I don't know how she stood it. She, we go in, she says, sit down. So we, um, not, you know, to follow orders, we sat down. And she says, Adam, this convention's coming here next year. Do you plan to be involved? And he said, yes. She said, well, what is it you think you could do? And, you know, he'd been the manager of all these programs and he's been active in Lions since 1979. And, and she, he, she said, what do you know about running a convention? You plan to be on the host committee? He says, well, yes. And she said, okay, so what is it you think you can do? And he says, well, I've been involved and I've been in the zone chair and I've been this. She said, oh, Adam, be quiet. She said, you don't know anything about how complicated an ACB convention is. And you don't have a clue what you're going to be asked to do at next year. And he says, well, I think I, she says, Adam, I said, be quiet. And so he did. And she said, now, here's an envelope with cash. I want you all to go home and buy a plane ticket to go to Los Angeles. You are going to Los Angeles if you plan to be involved next year. And she said, because you're going to be, a, we need your help on this host committee. And on the local host committee. And she says, so here's, here's this envelope and you're to be on that plane going to Los Angeles. Well, we got on the plane. It was easier to fight the switch. You know how that goes. And, um, so, um, and with her being the mother-in-law, you know, and, uh, so we get on that plane, we go to Los Angeles and it was at a Westin hotel. It, it was, it wasn't quite as, um, problematic, I guess, as St. Louis, or I didn't like this, this setup this year either, uh, but the West End was pretty challenging. And so one morning, uh, we didn't get a newspaper. And Adam says, well, I'll go down and, and find the newspaper. I said, okay. So he heads down to get the newspaper. He didn't come back, and he didn't come back, and he didn't come back. And I thought, oh my gosh, um, you know, I guess I'm going to I'll need to get Ringo on down the general session. And uh, finally, he shows up and he has the newspaper. And I said, well, did you have a hard time finding it? He said, yes. But he said, you know, I'm really impressed. Oh, my gosh, what with? And he said, I found Paul Edwards. Now, Paul Edwards was president of ACB at the time. And he said, I'm down there looking for a newspaper and and Adam's a total, by the way. And he said, and guess who I found? I found Paul Edwards down there looking for his own newspaper as well. And I said, well, so. And he said, do you think Mark Maurer had been president of NFB at the time? He said, do you think that Mark Maurer or before him, Kenneth Jernigan, would have been down in that lobby wandering around trying to find their newspaper? And I said, well, come to think of it. No, I don't. He said, absolutely not. They would have had somebody to send and get the newspaper. And he said, they'd have waited up in their nice, cushy suite and uh, had the newspaper brought to them. And he said that, that that really impressed him. And that fall, we had a state convention and he comes in. I was preparing the list of life members for the convention. He said, what are you doing? I said, preparing the list of life members. And he said, um, well, put my name on the list. And I said, you're not a member. I'm not putting your name on the list until you're a member. He says, I'm going to pay my life membership at the convention. I said, then I'll put your name on the list when you pay your money. 
And um, and that's when he became a member of ACB. But that little incident of him finding that the ACB president and, and he were on the same, you know, participating in just the, the activity of looking for the newspaper at the same level really impressed him that he, you know, there, there wasn't a difference in the status of a person who wasn't even a member at the time and the president of the organization, that they were both engaging in the same activity the same day and, you know, just getting through the convention, um, just, you know, just like each other would have done that. And like all the other ACB people were were doing it, finding a way to make things work, to make their convention comfortable. Yeah, during, you know, we had folks during during my presidency, there would be folks who would, who would say to Donna when I wasn't around, I said, gee, um, Mitch actually stopped and talked to me. He's the president. He's busy. And, and you know, that was, you know, that goes with the territory. Um, you're not aloof from membership. You're, you right. are a member that happened to, you know, take a couple of, of steps up the, up the leadership ladder and become president. And, and, you know, Carla is right. I mean, you know, I remember, in my Federation days, I think I went to Ken Jernigan's suite once uh, by invitation. And you were invited. You didn't just uh, walk absolutely. In, I'll bet. Absolutely. I and mean, we have people, you know, during during my six years, we usually the last night uh, we we had folks come up and just drop by, and and we usually had extra stuff for them to take home or take wherever, and we'd we'd give it and. And all of that, but you know, it's it's we're not the kind of organization, and, and hopefully never will be, where the president and and or leadership believes that they're better, uh, that they they don't have to mix and mingle with with rank and file uh, members of ACB. Mitch, you remember Ron Milliman? Of course. Right? Okay, well, he just course. passed away. And the first year he came to ACB, which was 2004 in Birmingham, he uh, called me up before that his group had just joined the Kentucky Council of the Blind. And he was going to uh, Birmingham and he, he said, I want you to help me with something. And I said, what's that? And he said, I want you, could you please arrange for me to get to meet Chris Gray? Chris was the president at the time. And I said, well, you know, I was kind of taken aback by that question because you didn't have to arrange to meet anybody. And <laughs> so I said, well, Ron, uh, I guess I could do it. He said, well, I really would like for you to get me an appointment. And I said, people don't do that by appointment in ACB. And he insisted. And I said, well, okay, I'll, I'll try to arrange it. And um, I forgot about it, <laughs> which didn't make Ron real happy. But um, anyway, so we arrived in. Um, Baltimore and um, Baltimore, in Birmingham, and I had told Ron, I said, "Well, you'll probably meet him, uh, you know, at the front desk when you're checking in or something. Uh, you may just discover he's there by you at the front desk, and that's how you'll meet him." So anyway, I forgot about, it. and I didn't think about it until like Tuesday of the convention, and 
I'm sitting in the cafe and here's Ron. And I said, oh, Ron, I'm sorry. I forgot to get an appointment for you with Chris. Do you still need that? He says, no. When I was checking in, I ran into Chris Gray. You said that probably would happen. (laughs) So, I mean, that's how ACB is. You don't have to have an appointment. You don't have to wait to be recognized to speak. And, um, you know, when you're, when you're, uh, with, when you meet somebody that's on the board or whatever, and it's just a pretty open atmosphere. Is there anything else that we have not spoke about this evening that you think would be valuable that we should all know about? Well, I think sometimes that, you know, people say, oh, um, you know, they, you know, some of the people that have been around a long time don't want to see much change. They, oh, well, we did it this way years ago, so we need to keep doing it this way. Change is inevitable. Um, if things don't change, they get stale. Things need to change. But we also, I think you all are, uh, do see the importance of learning from our past so we don't repeat uh, mistakes or whatever in the future. Sometimes that can be a detriment because um, if you try something um, and it doesn't work, then maybe a few years later you can try it and with a a little modification um, or sometimes just because people's attitudes or willingness to to try something has changed, you, you will find that it does work or that there are ways you can accomplish what you were looking to do the first time, but it'll work better the second time around. Um, and so I think, I think we have to be um, willing to look at new things or try new things or try modifications. And I think ACB has done a pretty good job of doing that over the years. In, in my convention years, that the the 20 years that I was associated in one way or another with convention planning and convention operations, we went through a number of changes. And uh, I think the biggest one that I can, um, that I can point to was in 1986 when um, we were going to be in Knoxville and we had a couple of hotels contracted, but, in 1986, we were still operating under the um, under the schedule with uh, all the the special interest groups uh, in the first part of the week, and then start and having exhibits in the first part of the week, and then having the general sessions starting Wednesday and all day Thursday, all day Friday, and part Saturday. Problem with that in Knoxville is that. We didn't have the space by the time the convention got there to be able to do that. We were going to have all the meetings in the Hyatt and we couldn't. And you say, how in the world could that happen? Well, because back then we chose the venue two years ahead. Well, Mitch said, you know, that when he joined, it was 1984. Well, California comes in and so does Iowa and a number of others. And that truly in those two years, ACB's convention managed to double. And uh, 
you know, I didn't know where I was going to put all those meetings. We didn't have room to put all that stuff in the Hyatt. And so there was a convention center that we could have put things in. Problem was, it didn't even have enough space. And ACB was too broke to pay for the convention center. So because of those things, we had nowhere to, to meet. And the board spent, so I had this um, schedule and come up with a way to merge that. And that's basically where we got the um, uh, the um, general meet, general sessions coming up in the morning and the uh, the groups meeting in the afternoon and exhibits kind of going along. And, um, but we, we basically bust that convention from the top of the hill in the morning with general session meetings down to the bottom of the hill at the Hilton for the afternoon meetings and the exhibit stayed in the Hyatt. Well, why that's important is because that was a major departure. Um, and, uh, but it took the board, I don't know, Mitch, if you were at that meeting or not, but oh my goodness, we, uh, we talked, we talked that thing, um, to death. I think we talked about it about four hours. And, um, and, and finally we were back to the very beginning. Fact was, didn't have money to pay for the convention center, didn't have, um, didn't have a space in the hotels that we had unless we did this change. And, you're thinking, well, how could we have bus people? We didn't have money for the convention center. How we pay for the buses? Well, um, the convention bureau agreed to donate the buses. So um, anyway, it happened. Now, over the years, we have modified that schedule. There's been things that came along, like the general session starting in the evening. Several years later, it moving to Saturday. Um, Several years later, the first uh, meetings in the afternoon, the first that first spot uh, being set aside supposedly strictly for special interest affiliates uh, used to be that you could look at the program as, as uh, back to uh, about 2009. You could look at that program. You'd see somebody starting a session at 2.30 and somebody else at 2.40 and somebody else at 2.45. I mean, it was just a mess. And so we finally got that kind of straightened out. And um, today we have set times. But those are the examples of the way things have to be tweaked and changed. There's all kinds of examples like that. And we need to be willing to change and, and, and modify. But we also need to look at what we have learned from what we've done in the past. And you know, the convention is just one small example, and it's a little tiny example even within that area. And, and I, I'll step in and say, and I give Carla the credit for pushing the, the idea of having uh, sessions, afternoon sessions that, that started at the same time and ended at the same time that really made convention planning uh, a whole lot easier. Um, you know, I, I think the the thing that I hope we never lose in ACB, and I hope it's the case in next gen. There's a I told you my background's political science, and I don't remember who the uh, who who it was that that made the comment several hundred years ago. Uh, democracy is the most inefficient form of government, <laughs> but it is the best one ever devised. 
And I know that my first couple of three years in, in ACB, I said, God, they're just talking and talking and talking and nothing is getting done. Well, uh, that is how we get things done. And, uh, and, uh, it, it really can be frustrating at times. Uh, believe me, it's really frustrating when you're, uh, at the podium and you're trying to run a meeting and you're trying to stop, you're trying to get the meeting to end sort of on time. But, uh, <laughs> and, and there are, there are things parliamentarily that you can, you can do to, to, uh, limit debate. But, but again, uh, our organization believes firmly in, in democratic principles, allowing people to express themselves and all that. Um, and, and I'm one of those, and I admit it, I'm not a big fan of change. And the older I get, the less uh, of a fan of change. But I also recognize that that uh, it's going to happen whether you like it or not. And uh, I think it was I think it was Steve Jobs who who said something to the effect a number of years ago. Uh, he said there should never be immortality. The reason people die is to be to move out of the way to allow uh, other people with other ideas to to implement them. That that if everybody was immortal, uh, things wouldn't change because because the old timers uh, would never be happy with things changing. Yeah, change is inevitable, but what what you hope is that the the, the guiding principles of this organization don't change. And and the other comment I would make is that for for those of you uh who who have an interest in leadership uh, outside of this affiliate, um I believe that a good ACB leader is a jack or Jill of all trades, uh, and maybe a master of one or two. But you need to really have uh, be well versed, or at least have a a general working knowledge of of as much of what ACB does as as possible. Now, our advocacy, our fundraising. Our relationship with uh, World Blind Union, um, you know, all of the things for which we take part and have have some influence. Uh, you know, one of my complaints, I guess, uh, about some of the newer people I see running for office is that I don't think they really have a broad enough understanding of the American Council of the Blind. And, you know, in the old days, you might say, well, have, they haven't paid their dues. Well, I won't say that because they may have paid their dues locally or on the state affiliate or a special interest affiliate. But I, I think that that someone who decides to run for a, a, an organization-wide position really needs to have a good grasp of uh, what the organization is doing. And the other, and the other thing, and I'm, I'm not the first person to say it. I've, you know, I, I worked in, in HR for 20 years, so I read enough HR stuff over the years. Um, you, the, the best leaders are, are those 
who admit what they're not the strongest in and bring people into your circle who who are experts in that area and in fact may even be smarter than you don't feel threatened feel like uh they are going to contribute they are going to help you lead better and and be a stronger president or uh whatever position it is that you're you're filling don't be afraid to to bring people with you who who are are sharper who are more who are better versed in a particular area than you may be and and don't be afraid to bring people on who who you decide mm, you know that guy's guy's a little sharper even than I am in some areas uh I need I need them on my side so you know those are those are my thoughts well, I think another thing that you need to do if you want to climb the um, ACB leadership ladder is um, especially when it comes to ACB board positions. And I think it's very important. There are people who, I don't know, it's not so much today, but um, for example, the directors, there are 10 directors and people used to say, well, what do the directors do? And I've actually heard people say, oh, they don't have anything specific they do. So, it, you know, you want to be a director because you don't have to do much. Well, you know, don't you believe that's true um, anymore? Um, the uh, When I was treasurer, uh, both under Mitch and under Kim, um, I, I had, and back in, that was in days before Zoom, we had, you know, did conference calls. Um, Oh, my goodness. I mean, there would be evenings that I would have two and three conference calls. And, you know, sometimes more you'd have. I remember Brenda Dillon uh, one night on a call. She was trying to keep up with three calls at the same time. Um, I think today, I, I don't know this, but I am pretty sure that today board members have more to do because they are sent. Uh, they have to be conversant with the or they should be, with the documents they're sent. They're expected to do a lot of different things. And um, and you can't pick and choose the time. And same thing with a lot of things in ACB, with committees and things. You really should not approach those positions, national positions, as, well, if I don't have time to do that, I'll just not do it right now. Um, you shouldn't approach your affiliate that way. If you're in a leadership position in your affiliate, if whatever affiliate it is, that is a commitment. And that commitment doesn't go away in June if that's inconvenient for you. Or it doesn't go away in October if that's inconvenient for you. Um, if, if you are ill, um, oh gosh, I mean, you may not be able to fulfill something right now. But next week, when you feel better, it, the work still is there and still has to be done. Um, you know, there can be an emergency or something in, um, you know, with with your friend or your neighbor or your family. The work still has to be done. It's it's a commitment, and um, so and that's hard to do sometimes because um, 
you know, life can get in the way. And there are times when you absolutely can't do something. But if you're going to take that position and voluntarily put yourself forward into um, a position, be it a committee chair, be it a, uh, a board member or whatever, on an affiliate, affiliate level, a national level, whatever, it it is a year-round commitment. Mitch, I think you wound up retiring mainly because you didn't have the time to work and be ACB president. Um, Chris, I, yeah, Chris, that, that's you? right. I I retired in in two thousand eight. I had a I had a supervisor, our our department head, who said, as long as you get your work done. Um, you know, you can, you can do your ACB stuff, but after a year, now there were other reasons that it was time for me to pull the plug, but, but that was, that was, that was definitely a, a contributing factor. But the other thing too, Carla, to your, to your point, um, I think I, um, well, in 2011, when I was still president, I ended up, I ended up in the hospital for six days with a staph infection. I still had work to do. Um, I had my my cell phone, and uh, I I was doing ACB business while I was in a hospital bed, and uh, you know I think Donna <laughs> thought I was crazy. I know her parents thought I was crazy, but I said work has to get done. I I yep. cannot just just because I'm in a hospital, I'm getting treated for a staph infection. Doesn't you know when I'm conscious when I'm when I'm awake, you spend a lot of time doing nothing in a hospital bed. Uh, <laughs> you have work to do, and I did it. Well, at that age, at the 2012 convention, uh, when Janet told me that was her first year as convention coordinator, and we met for dinner at the Gold House on um, Wednesday night, and she said, "Now I don't care what you do," she said, "Just don't go and get sick on me," and um, <laughs> you know, because it was her first year, and. Yep. Um, Friday morning, we were supposed to start the, that first leader, uh, leadership uh, institute, which became the Royal College Leadership Institute. And um, Janet gets up, and she's expecting us to be down there to do certain things for that. And somebody says, oh, Carla's not coming. She's in the hospital having surgery. And what was that? The, at the We had a post-convention board meeting after that. And um, so I missed the whole convention. But at that yep. board meeting, um, I uh, I got on the phone. You all let me get on the phone into that yep, meeting yep. as before Zoom, and I got on the meeting. I was I was late because they were putting a, a pick line in that morning. Yep. <laughs> so because I tried, they'd taken all these tubes and stuff out too soon. They had to put that pick line in so I could, you know, tolerate food and go home finally. And that was a week later, but I was at that meeting and. Yep. You know, I mean, sometimes you have to do those things if you're going to fill the position. And that was my first year as treasurer. And I felt like I really needed to show up at that meeting. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Next, uh, we have we have Jessica Barr. Um, I just have a quick question. Um, the book uh, People of Vision, I think you said it's called. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that available in Braille? either hard copy or electronic braille yes yes yeah, it it's, it's available in in any format you can imagine <laughs> uh, i think i read it i'm trying to remember if i read it yeah i think i read it in braille but i'm i'm not sure but yeah. it's it's available in in all formats and 
James and, and Catherine McGivern, M-E-G-I-V-E-R-N, were the authors, father and daughter, if I recall correctly. I remember reading about it. No, it, it was it was it was Jim and Marjorie. Or Marjorie, what? Kathy was the daughter. That's right. Is yeah. Jim and Marjorie yeah. McGivern? Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, Kathy's the one that worked at the national office. And she worked at the national office uh, with with Oral, I think, as a matter of fact. She did, and Durward. Yeah. Cool. She came Thank here you. to some of our conventions. She was very cool. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Yep. And then, um. Since we are drawing to the end, will um, Matt Salm will be the last question. I'll defer, Kristen, if there's another hand. There are no other hands. So if you have a question. All right. So I guess I'll take my point of privilege. Um, So I've always kind of thought of ACB as really a cultured organization. really of the of the 60s you know that we are not only uh rebelling in our separation from the nfb but that <laughs> we are uh extremely uh extremely democratic almost almost to the painful <laughs> almost or it's painful <laughs> yeah and so i wonder what you all think about that thought if if you know acb really is a um you know, really is a product of that of that time and the way it's been influenced. And then also, where do you all think we're going in the future? You know, we live in the, you know, we ACB kind of accultured itself to doing everything hybrid. And, you know, I see people more times in a month, whereas in the past, I might only saw them once or twice a year, you know, and uh, that's been a big, a big change. So I wonder where you all think this this is kind of going both for so I, the organization I, and for its affiliates. I, I think uh, you're you're correct. Uh, the organization, from an organizational cultural standpoint, we're, we're we probably uh, are a product of the of the '60s, and and there are still folks who are reacting to the to the way the federation did things. Um, there was a resolution this summer, uh, that we were, we were, um, asking that state affiliates establish, and I think Carla, you and I were on opposite sides on this one. Um, but we were, we were calling upon our state affiliates to develop, um, prohibited conduct policies and procedures. And there were people who basically said, well, you're telling our state affiliates what they can do. And those were people who, you know, in, 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 in political circles, they'd call them states' rights people. And, and ACB is very much a states' rights organization, even though our, our democratic principles certainly did pretty well spawn from the 60s. But but we said no. We're not telling you what to do. This isn't Darn that right organization. <laughs> we, yeah, we what we are saying is, and you know, giving reasons why we think this is a good idea, and um, you can choose to to put some, some of those policies together. Um, I know I I lent 
some some input to Next Gen some months ago. I've been helping California out a little bit on that, but but there are times, and this wasn't one of them, but there there have been times over the years where I have been unhappy enough over something that I have turned to whomever. Uh, Donna, for the most part, has heard my rants over the last 20 years. I said, you know, there are times when we are too bloody democratic and, and there, we really, there, are, there are areas where we really ought to be able to tell an affiliate they have to do it this way. Otherwise, you know, the potential is, uh, is for, for everybody to get into trouble. But, but I, think, I, I think depending on what side of an issue you're on, uh, you're, you're likely once or twice during a convention or during a board meeting to, to come out of it and say, we're too nice. We, we, give, we give our affiliates or we give individuals too much freedom. But, you know, that's that's organization. And there are times when I say that about our country. So, you know, everybody's yeah. got too much freedom. There's an old saying, freedom without responsibility is license. And it's something I learned in high school civics, and it's something I still believe. If people aren't responsible while they're using freedom, then basically license is a whole word, meaning that they they feel like they can do whatever they bloody well want to. But where we're going, um, I, and, and Carla may well disagree with this, I think we're heading toward a, an organization where we have fewer state affiliates because I think the trend, because of virtual meetings and Zoom and, and all of that, I, I think we're heading toward an organization where uh, we may have more um, at-large members than members who belong to state affiliates, and that's unfortunate. I know there have been some area, some efforts, some states that have had regional conventions. Uh, it was done in the mid-Atlantic states years ago. I attended that convention. It's been done in, uh, I think, with Indiana and Ohio. Indiana, yeah. Uh, and and it, it makes me sad in a way, but... Uh, again, I'm I, I'm happy to admit that, that there are some changes that I see that I don't, don't like, but I think that's the trend, at least in that in that regard. Well, uh, one comment I did make when we were talking about the membership thing, and we're talking about membership decreasing in the special and the uh, state affiliates. I think the strength is sort of shifting, and there are shifts. There have been shifts uh, from time to time in the past. It's kind of like. Um, Kind of like our financial condition. Some days it's up, some days it's down. Well, uh, the the strength of whether it be the state affiliate versus the special interest affiliate is like that. It swings back and forth. And I think right now, um, with with the the virtual things and how we can all do things and join people's groups. I mean, there's people on this call from all over the country, and. Um, you know, we're pretty spread out geographically. Um, and, and so I think that, um, I think that really the special interest groups have the, um, have the, uh, the, the, they, they have the, um, the push right now, uh, to increase. And, uh, I know in, uh, families and library users and lions, if you go back and look to 
uh, pre-COVID days, um, our uh, our membership is pretty much growing. Um, you know, CCLVI got the membership award this year, and they're bound and determined they're going to try to get it next year. I think some of the rest of us are going to try to outdo them, but that's a good thing. And um, and and people, I think, tend to relate better, at least it seems right now, to things that interest them, where they have a common interest, rather than, um, obviously, in some of the states where they're pretty spread out, maybe they don't have a lot of leadership in that geographical area. Maybe they're having to go out and take members from other states. I mean, this year there were states that had delegates from states that weren't even anywhere close to the state that they were supposedly representing. And so um, I, I really feel that that's going to be part of the trend. With um, with the hybrid conventions and things, I don't think we can go back. Um, some people really want us to go back. Some people say, well, it should just be um, in person. If you can't go, well, um, you know, too bad. Uh, I don't know about anybody else, but I know that here in Kentucky, we have members that participate. I mean, almost any time there's a call, they're on that call. And, uh, but they are people who, in a number of cases, cannot go to a convention for one reason or another. And those reasons vary. And I, I think I, even though I get frustrated with um, the resolutions process, we'll work that out. Um, I think that, uh, you know, even though I don't like some of the things that are happening, and sometimes I'm real frustrated and say, oh, I just don't know. I don't know if I can stand this or not. Oh, yes, I can. Because um, I, it really does make me glad, happy, whatever you want to say, to see people that for years would have really liked to participate in a national convention, but they could never get there. And maybe the reasons they can't go now are different than they couldn't go 30 years ago. But bottom line was they couldn't go. And uh, I, I, I just think those things are important and uh, they're going to shape us in the future. They have to. So, but then there's the related costs and they are hefty. So we may not be able to do quite as much as we want to, but we're going to have to find ways to make it work. When they tell me, what frustrates me is when they tell me that, uh, well, um, you know, we have so many people, so many more people voting today than, than we did four or five years ago. No, we don't. Um, they're just in different places. Um, I, I just that I had a laugh on that one myself, Carla. I thought that was amusing because I could count. It was more than amusing. It, it yeah, was. Yeah. It was disgusting, quite honestly. Yeah, it was. It was just not. It, it was not factual. Right, and the people saying it knew it wasn't factual, and that really frustrates me. If if you've got a point, you've got a good, um, you got a good suggestion. You don't have to um, make it up in order to make it work. So. Mm-hmm. You know, that frustrates me, and I didn't like that in ACB, and I found that to be very problematic. And I don't know about you, Mitch, but um, I, I'm I'm not going to sit back and let that kind of myth continue if it's at all possible. No, and, and I think a lot of leaders, too, uh, today and before as well, but a lot of our leaders 
You know, we're living in an age where, uh, you know, everybody wants to be nice to each other. Everybody's afraid of offending somebody. Um, they might get called up uh, on that code of conduct. You know, you didn't. Make well, that. and they'd have to deal with me, which which they don't really want to do. But um, yeah. well, you you you've got to be you. There is no harm in being honest and telling it like it is. Um, you know, there were people that you know who said, you know, I don't necessarily. Uh, like you, I don't like your your personality, uh, but but I know I always know where you stand, and and you know I've always my philosophy is I've I've always preferred I'd rather be respected than liked. I don't yeah. need to be be liked. I I right. I like myself plenty. I don't need I don't need to be liked by I I want to be respected. Yeah, and if you're not sure if we don't like ourselves, just ask us. <laughs> we'll tell That's you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's <laughs> right. So, and, but I, I do think and, ACB is going to change. We have to change because we have to accommodate these new ways we have of doing things that the 2020 convention made us realize that we could do. And I thought that was a, you know, when when COVID came and that March board meeting came on what March 31st, and they they said we're not going to Schomburg. We're going to make this. Um, we're going to make this a virtual convention. And Dan Spoon called me up, uh, you know, just because I worked in conventions a lot. And he called me and said, what do you think? Do you think we can do it? And I said, absolutely. You know, we can do it if we want to. And But at that time, uh, you know, we didn't know COVID was going to last all that long. And uh, I said, oh, Dan, don't you know about flu season? I said, well, we'll all be there in July. Well, of course, we weren't there in July. And. Um, but I thought that was a fabulous convention. It was different, um, but I I, en- I enjoyed it. And our problem, you know, there's going to be a lot of problems that we have to work through in those things. But we proved to ourselves that we were capable of totally changing course and making it successful. And that was successful. So I, I think we'll be successful in the future. And uh, Kristen, I'm going to steal one more, one more here. You know, I think we often overlook how important it is that we sometimes agree to disagree, but still move forward to get the work of the organization or organizations done. You know, that we don't allow disagreements over an issue to be a, a complete uh, line of division that thou shall not pass, you know. I think it's a yes. very important culture of ACB. Well, I, yes. I can't count the number of times Carl and I have agreed to disagree. But I, <laughs> I think the problem today is I've always said we're a microcosm of society at large. And today it seems increasingly difficult for folks to agree to disagree and not make it personal, uh, not get their feelings hurt. Uh, not decide that because someone didn't agree with with your point of view that they're a bad person. And I think there's too much of that. And unfortunately, uh, we see that in ACB because we're part of this society. All right. Well, I just wanted to thank, first of all, Mitch and Carla for uh, coming tonight and giving us this wonderful presentation. Um, I 
And I also want to thank uh, the members of the programs committee for, for their work on this, um, for Vika for helping reach out to speakers, and also to uh, Shane and Lindsay for for having a question for us and and for all of Amanda's help and in ensuring that that this program would be successful. Um, and so and I just want to thank everybody else for attending. Um, this has been, like I said, super insightful. I, I hope that you all learned something just as I have. Um, so, yeah, I thank you. And I hope that everyone has a good rest of their week. Thank you for, thank you. Uh, for inviting you. us. If you want to know more about ACB Next Generation and the work we are doing to empower the next generation of leaders in ACB, visit our website at acbnextgeneration.org. Thank you.